Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today, we're going to discuss the natural gas markets in China. China is expected to be the world's largest importer of LNG in the next two years, superseding Japan. And also this year saw it launch Pipe China, an amalgamation of all the distribution pipes in China under one organization, which is expected to accelerate the market opportunity for both domestic and international players. Our guest is Mark Lei. Based in Beijing, he is the Deputy General Manager for Derivatives Trading at ENN, the country's largest publicly traded utility and gas distributor. Mark, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Paul. Before we talk about the current state of the market, I certainly appreciate, and I'm sure our listeners would do as well, just a brief history of the gas markets in China that led us up to the last couple of years of where we are right now. Uh, sure. I, I think it's always good to have in mind the background of how rapidly China has grown because we talk about it, but you know, when you put some real numbers to it, it's fantastic because you're looking at an economy that was you know, roughly a trillion dollars around two, 2000, roughly six trillion by 2010, and now 14, just using world of bank numbers. So what happened is that China has always had significant oil and gas reserves and obviously developed some very large state-owned companies to exploit those reserves. And with the rapid growth, they found that they were going to have to begin importing either uh, via LNG or over land and, and started building those supply systems uh, in the 2010 decade. And then in 2010, you had uh, the first pipelines coming in from the West, from former Soviet Union countries, and then you had coming in from over the ocean LNG. And so it's it's very different from the U.S. You, know, you, you really have a system of pipelines that are effectively average life is less than less than eight years for the vast majority of it. And then you have uh, a large network of that's been built up so rapidly that it doesn't often always connect in the most rational way. And so with that rapid growth, you've had a lot of opportunities over the past decade in particular, as you had uh, LNG coming in, beginning to come in through new terminals. Uh, trucks have been an extremely large component of the distribution network, effectively acting as really the leading edge or a virtual pipeline that established new routes that would be then filled in later with pipelines. Uh, and then you've you've had various different phases where the government has either emphasized or driven gas adoption, both because of industrial and because of environmental concerns. And those acceleration periods very often cause their own problems that then are addressed through the market and through the government cooperating with the market. Uh, and now we're really in a reaching a state of maturity, I think, where the the government is trying to go from 
a super rapid growth to a more long-term stabilized program that will allow the the industrial consumer in particular to begin lowering and rationalizing their their cost of gas all of this in an effort to continue overall economic growth and facilitate adoption of natural gas where it makes the most sense for the GDP to continue. So there's a lot to unpack there. You've had this, for the most part, it's been these big pipelines from Kazakhstan, the one from Russia, we'll come on to that shortly, has has just come online. And you've had LNG. Before we move to the trucks, which I think is one of the most fascinating aspects of this story, who was building the LNG facilities over the last 20 years? Was that the state-owned oil companies? Was that foreign partners? Sure. Really, the, the about 80, I think 85%, really all of the terminals, uh, except for ENN's terminal, all the terminals that they would call world scale, 3 million tons per year and larger, were state-owned terminals until... Uh, really the last year and a half. Uh, and so what's happened then in the last year and a half to two years is that with the rapid growth in LNG, there has been uh, a shift from the state-owned companies building those terminals to now still significant companies, but no longer the the mega companies, the mega state companies building or expanding terminal capacity. And so you have a shift in those assets from 100% state-owned that are now getting contributed to the pipeline company, the same one that's taking over transmission, and a move of a new set of owners that are that are now trying to build these very larger 3 million ton a year plus uh, import facilities. And I think we're going to come on towards the end why why it might be a, a change in the type of organization building those regas facilities. Just staying on the last decade or so, you've had a series of steps in deregulation and political support for natural gas driven by industrial and environmental concerns, as you said. And we can sort of see a various statements coming in the tens decade pushing that agenda. But so you had these major pipelines connected to regas, and then really those pipelines were just connecting city gates, so the major population areas. Can you talk a bit about city gates? And then can you start us on the journey of how trucking LNG started and, and what that has done, and I guess that unique type of market in China? The city gates are really function very similar to the to what they are in the U.S. I mean, they're they're primary delivery points, connections between the high pressure systems, long distance transmission lines, and then local distribution systems. Uh, at the city gate, the the primary difference is that you're you're moving into a a utility distribution function, but those utilities are. Uh, exclusive zones uh, that are controlled by the government uh, through a concession. And the concession is either awarded to a joint venture or a private company uh, for a period of time, uh, often 24 to 30 years. So what happened is that when they originally built the, uh, started building LNG terminals in 2010, uh, well, or 
they started building before then, but they created access. They they didn't have the pipeline infrastructure. Uh, it, it's not like the U.S. where you had huge oil infrastructure and converted some of it and and then grew around that. They, they literally were having to build all of the infrastructure from the ground up. And so what you had with the, the the first terminals was that the the only way to get the gas from the terminal to the customer base was to truck it and and really that's the that's been the primary that was the primary use of the trucks probably for the first five years was to act as the pipeline uh, when a terminal was built and they would they would be the the way to transmit trans, transmit the gas from the terminal to the consumer and uh over time then what also began to develop was that heavy trucks were incentivized to use uh, LNG instead of instead of diesel and so you had then the largest network of LNG distribution for heavy truck usage in the world develop around that. So if you talk about roughly 70 million tons a year, plus or minus of LNG imported into the country, then you've got 25 million tons, 27 million tons a year that gets moved by these trucks. Uh, and, and, And some of that's actually generated at inland plants also, but the, the trucks continue to be the the virtual pipeline for new gas market entrants and then also the primary distribution for transportation usage. How did that market develop? Mechanically, we don't have that anywhere else in the world as far as I'm really aware. What was it about the, the CNI, the, the big industrial plants in China, that meant that they could even receive these LNG trucks and and how was that market managed itself? You know, was this a traded market? It just seems fascinating that it seems it also sounds like it could have been a lucrative time for traders as well. The fascinating thing about the truck market is that it is in fact completely deregulated. There is no established price, uh, and what's happened is it, it's a lot like the 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 original days of gas marketing uh, in the U.S. I mean, it, you had some very small companies that were just several trucks that were able to buy and find customers and sell and and develop into much larger companies but that's that goes back to the the rapid growth that you had particularly from the period between uh 2010 and 2015 uh where you you literally had, in fact, the chairman of ENN, he started out about in the at the end of 1990s, he started out just literally picking up propane tanks and moving them. So there, there is a strong entrepreneurial capacity uh, in China. And, and I think that LNG trucking uh, took advantage of it. It was a matter of entrepreneurs figuring out that there was a demand to move the LNG and that if it the consumers just were looking for gas because at the time it was the 
only way that they were going to be able to build an industrial facility that needed the heat loads. So they built these facilities. Most facilities are relatively new compared to, say, the Western world. They built them with these propane or LNG connectors as well, built in. Yes. What you would have is an LNG receiving station. It's not terribly – it's not a huge technical undertaking. It's a, it's a large insulated tank and then uh, a regas – effectively a big heat, heat transfer unit that, that allows you to move that from liquid into gas form and then through a, a – from that point, it's just a normal gas distribution. Yeah. And was I assume – there was a derivatives market that developed as well around this whole retail scale or commercial scale LNG trucking business. No, no, that's one thing that, and that was one thing that I found fascinating when I came here, because I came here in 2016 for the first time. And when I, when I came here, uh, I was actually working for ENN in the U S and I began discussing the opportunity because you you could look at China and you could ENN in particular with control of an offshore terminal uh, control of roughly at that time I think they had about 90 million uh, potential customers in the in the concessions that they had and they were the second largest truck distribution firm there was no such thing as a forward market. There was no such thing as a multi-month price. And that was, there's no understand, there was no understanding of, of trading swaps. Commodity derivatives really are not well understood or utilized uh, by, especially by the private industry. In the state-owned companies, there's more understanding of them. But once you get out of the state-owned companies, there's very little understanding. So in 2017, we actually established basis books and started managing contracts across the country on truckload volumes using you know, just standard brick and mortar of what you would for any derivatives group uh, where you're trying to manage a, a basis book and, and, and relatively short term under 12 month fixed price contracts. Yeah, I just find it fascinating. If I'm a, if I'm an industrial, then outside of I guess what you've established, how would I forecast? It would ensure that I had physical delivery of the natural gas I need to be able to run my my plant. If, if there weren't sort of these longer term contracts or that more sort of stable market setup that we have elsewhere in the world, I think that again there has to you have to understand that China is. Obviously, the, the the second largest economy in the world, but that doesn't mean that everything operates in the same predictable fashion that we're used to in Europe or North America. So every organization here, especially for the smaller companies and then for new companies, they're all built around flexibility and the capability to manage a lot of uncertainty. Uh, and sometimes it means they have a significant amount of redundancy. Some of them, frankly, they, if they just don't get gas, they'll just turn off and send workers home. Uh, now, that that obviously happens much less now than it, than it probably did 
five or six years ago. But there are absolutely operations that are, that are, that can deal. They just, that's part of the way that they work. So as the, as the economy has become more developed, that that's become the, the certainty has become more of an issue. And so I think that that's one of the things that is, is changing along with the overall as commodities, as the commodity markets, as the gas market develops, certainty and requirement for certainty is also increasing. I presume as well, you could always go to the city gate. It would just de facto be a more expensive gas than what you were getting via the, the truck LNG. Yeah. If you're hooked up to a city gate, then that's you always have that redundancy. That's sort of the state of the market. You've got a push to more transparent pricing, push to actually more consumption of, of natural gas, whether it's domestic production, which is relatively small, overland pipes or this LNG. And you've got this trucked market that basically filled a need in the space. Moving to, to this year, the big news from China is this development of Pipe China. Can you explain what that is and what the consequence of that is? Yeah. Pipe China is a consolidation of what I I would recognize in the U.S. as the interstate transmission assets. And I think that what's happened is that over as as the markets developed, as there's they've reached a maturity level, there's been an appreciation that the next step is to create a market that then allows uh, for some type of capturing or, or creation and capturing of efficiencies. So historically, you really have had in the in in China effectively, say three constituencies that that were the primary drivers of policy. You know, you had the federal government, the provincial government, and then the state-owned companies. And one of the the challenges that that creates is that each of those organizations has a different perspective. And then the assets are divided up in not necessarily a logical fashion, but they're divided up between the state-owned companies and the provinces. And so there were circumstances where a LNG facility might get built, but then it would take two years after it was become operational for a pipeline to be connected to it, which again was another reason that you had trucks is so that you know, that that LNG facility could, could start up immediately and begin moving cargoes uh, for distribution. So what, what was negotiated over, I, I don't know the full time period, but what's coming into effect is that the national pipeline company will now be in charge of all of the uh, main transmission lines inside of China. They're also getting a large percentage of the uh, import terminals contributed to the pipeline company. And then there, there, there's, a, there's effectively a negotiation then also for certain large provincial grid pipelines to be contributed because you have in some of the provinces that are more developed like Guangdong you have 
the province has developed a, a, a very large distribution system that we, we, we might, uh, the analogy would be an intrastate system. And so some of those systems will get contributed to this to eventually then create a more manageable uh, market system. And, and that means that you'd have these, it's going to be easier for CNI type organizations, just industrials, um, to connect directly to the these transmission lines as opposed to going through the city gates? That's the primary concern that I have with the, the way it's set up now. And, and things tend to, they, they move in phases. And so the first phase is really primarily focused on increasing efficiency to the city gates. and. So the city gates will be, and and there'll be certain there are certain industrials that that may already have direct connections to the primary transmission lines, or that are not behind a city gate. They could have access uh, to the system, but an industrial that's behind a city gate is still going to be constrained to buying from the city. Right. Okay. But there's probably dare I say it, more facility for that to change via regulation than there was previously when you didn't have that kind of one point of control over the pipeline. One of the things you you said to me previously is that um, one of the big differences between the Chinese market and other Europe and, and North America in particular is there's no requirement to connect the upstream to the downstream. And that has huge consequences in terms of investment. Can you talk to that a little? Yeah, I think that one of the one of the biggest drivers, certainly early on, uh, in deregulation and and then creation of both demand and and supply in the U.S. was a an established formula for requiring the interstate pipelines to receive connections from gathering systems. Or, or to connect to new transmission lines. So when you had in the IPP's beginning, a power plant could know exactly what it was going to have to pay in order to get connected to a main transmission line. So there wasn't a negotiated process. And then on the upstream side, the a, a large producer or a gathering system that was looking at a new field had a very clear idea of what the cost would be and the timelines in order to bring a new supply into the, into the pipeline and then to the market. That That's not been defined here. Uh, and I think that that's, that's going to be a, a bit of a more challenging uh, process for two reasons. I mean, the first is the, the state-owned companies have control of production or large percentage of production. And so they, in effect, have a a desire to maintain that and are, are probably going to view independent producers uh, as competition for concessions. Uh, the, the other part is that the provinces on on the consumer side uh are actually the ones that own and and assign the concessions and and very often often have a joint venture or certainly have 
some revenue relationship with the gas distributor. So the provinces are going to have to reconcile profit that they may lose from opening connections to industrials with the benefits that they they would they would garner from from improving that access. I guess in summary of the state of the, the market right now, and we're going to move on to kind of the future and the trading opportunity there, as I know that will be of great interest to our community. Would you call the current state of the market, is it is it a deregulated market? If so, or if not, what do you think are the key differences compared to other deregulated markets in the in the world, perhaps outside of that upstream downstream connectivity you just mentioned. Well, I think first the truck market is is completely free. It, it is market based, so the only limitations there are are, are economics, uh, and that's that's as competitive and open really as as any market in the world, mm. and quite saturated. It's it is. It's very volatile because there are uh, it, it, it's volatile because the competition is volatile because there there are games that the terminals play, but it, it's also difficult to compete as you'd imagine driving a truck any distance to deliver gases. You've got to shrink as they expand the network of pipelines then the opportunities for delivering truck gas to anything other than other LNGs for transport is shrinking. Uh, So as the growth rate on the overall market slows, that certainly becomes a a shrinking opportunity. The, The pipeline opportunity is not deregulated. It is what I'd call it is in the experimental phase. Uh, and and really for the past two years or so, uh, it's been, they they've gone through different auctioning processes and experiments, and now they're beginning to open up bidding on slots for terminal access, and then uh, potentially opening up uh, more opportunities for people to move transmission to city gates to to qualified buyers. But it, it's still at a stage that is very, very restricted in terms of who's allowed to participate and exactly what they're allowed to do. Right. That's a, an excellent summation of the market right now. As you look over the next five years, is this going to be the next big natural gas trading opportunity for these global trading houses, You know, the trading arms of, of merchants around the world? Maybe we can split it into reasons for that being the case and and some reasons against. What are the the positive signals that this is going to be a really interesting market for for the world's trading community? I think the most fascinating part of it is just that you you are really going – you have access through the truck market now to sell gas to the inland market in China. So – if you have the ability to get a slot at a terminal, which is is rapidly opening, then there's absolutely the opportunity to establish markets for for gas uh, into inland China, and you know, the the coastal areas obviously being 
the the easiest to access with with truck the opportunity i think the question on the pipelines is going to be how much access is distributed so if they stop at the city gate or if the provinces and the cities themselves are able to control or decide to control then then you end up with a very limited market and you have basically very little opportunity to develop creative or new new types of structures and and deals that would make sense i would expect eventually that begins to liberalize and so it's a question of time and the benefit of being in china is that okay it, it may not be the whole country but it could accelerate certainly is more likely to accelerate in the south uh, than the whole country and and that may, that's a pretty sizable market so it will open up over time it just requires some diligence and patience to to identify where the access is profitable i know a couple of the challenges you foresee are in two areas obviously you've got to deal with these incumbents some of whom have real power coming from their ownership structure you've also got in china you've alluded to it to me in the past these policy decisions can be quite unheralded and quite sudden and that create creates quite a challenging environment to to i guess navigate there's just a lot of uncertainty there is 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 that a fair statement yeah in the us there were there was almost there was probably a decade of open hearings and discussions and so it was very predictable what what was going to happen i mean certainly everybody was trying to influence the direction of those decisions but it was done in a in in a public forum and people understood what the rules were and when it did open everybody knew what they were going to be required to do in order to you know, be part of the system the surprising thing I think about China when it first came here was you, know, you walk in expecting that you're going to have this very rigid, very exacting, formulaic approach to things. It's much more experimental and the government is much more willing to just try things in a relatively limited basis. I mean, they, they will, they'll pick out a certain region or regions and establish a program and you know, there will be an announcement that in one week we're going to open an, you know, an auction for this volume of gas delivered to this city gate and you're invited to participate and then you, you participate. So the, the, the process is much going to be much more opaque. It's going to be, there are going to be twists and turns and, and surprises doesn't mean that it won't move forward. It'll just move forward in a very different way than what I think most Western companies are used to. And I guess that points to the fact that there is also this kind of need to have boots on the ground, so to speak, to be there when these things open up. Because it sounds from what you're saying that there's probably going to be, or the odds are there's going to be a steady march towards further market opportunity, but it's hard to predict when and how that will come. And you need those people there to be able to you know, to, to, to react to it. And I guess the other piece of that is, it sounds really interesting if 
China continues to be a major importer of natural gas, whether that's pipeline or LNG. And this year, China has exceeded records in LNG importation. I mentioned at the start that I think it's predicted to um, exceed Japan's requirements in the next two years or so. That seems a huge opportunity, but you're not so sure, right? There is a big domestic natural gas opportunity in China that as yet hasn't been exploited. Can you talk to why that is, what that opportunity is, and kind of what the ramifications might be for LNG? And and I guess I'm making a compound question here, but why was so much LNG imported this year? Well, I think that LNG imports are a a plug to solve the shortfall. And and that that's really what was recognized in the early 2000s was that you're going to have to have imports. And so the Chinese also understood that they didn't want to be beholden to only the pipeline links or only the LNG. And so they built both. So the question that exists is that right now, domestic production of natural gas is actually about 50, 55%. It's been a shrinking percentage. And I think that there's a general government objective to increase production. Now, the, the, the focus is crude oil uh, because that's viewed as a, a major strategic requirement and and not and natural gas is not as critical. But conversations that I've had with independent producers that are active here is that they're absolutely convinced that the resource potential, if they applied Western technologies, you know, shale technologies, tight formation technologies that have been developed, that they, they feel like there could be an absolutely huge growth in production. The, the, the challenge is that it is the whole issue of getting access to offtake agreements. And so I think that that's what's going to be very interesting to see over the next couple of years is whether China is willing to allow companies to develop that acreage that may want to have some control over their technology as they use it to exploit the, 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 the reserves, uh, or if they're going to continue down the same path and, and really restrict the concessions to the, to the standard producers that already exist here and who may or may not be able to accelerate that development. Is that tied to, you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, that the development of these regas terminals has been primarily by these Chinese state-owned um, organizations who also own these concessions to a certain amount. Is that significant that they haven't been continuing to really push LNG? I don't know that they're linked so much uh, as it's just shifting priorities. I, I I would doubt that there was necessarily an a, an objective decision of okay we're only going to do LNG versus inland production. It it was it was certainly something that could have happened just naturally because there was an emphasis on and a need for developing a huge import capacity rapidly. 
because there just was no way that given the state of the technology that they, that they could have developed the fields rapidly enough. So I, I don't think that that was an either or issue as much as just a focus on making absolutely certain that they had enough import capacity so the industrial engine wouldn't starve. Yeah. It, finally, you're in Beijing or just outside. How has 2020 perhaps changed some of these trajectories? I'm thinking of COVID. I'm thinking of perhaps environmental awareness as a result of these shutdowns showing the stark contrast between polluting days and non-polluting days. Has there been any sort of, do you think the natural gas story is is even stronger as a result of COVID or 2020 and you see more generation going to natural gas? What sort of, I guess, do you think COVID has done to change, if at all, the natural gas story in China? I, I don't think that it's had a tremendous impact. I think that the trajectory has been really strengthened by China's desire to uh, increase the blue sky days as much as continue industrial development uh, and a recognition that natural gas is going to be an important part of that. Uh, the, 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 the challenge that it, it may present is that if if natural gas prices and 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 again oil linked contract prices uh, as those escalate then then i think you'll begin to see whether or not there'll be a slowdown in that growth trajectory because there's certainly going to be a temptation to uh substitute back for coal where it makes sense but Natural gas is 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 definitely a major part of China's long-term energy portfolio and it's going to continue to grow rapidly and be a major contributor. Yeah. Well, it's been an absolute fascinating insight, especially for, you know for me on the market over there and certainly appreciate you staying up uh, staying up late to talk. You know, and it seems like there's a kind of a watch this space and a potentially huge opportunity for um, both domestic and international organizations in natural gas in China. Thanks very much, Mark. And uh, yeah, look forward to, to connecting again and seeing how that market's developed. Thank you very much, Paul. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and Human Capital, a search firm dedicated to the commodities sector, go to www.hcinsider.global, where you'll find more original content on the commodities sector and more details on our offering as a search firm and our locations around the world. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.